0: Uh, my name is Jim Rigby, I'm a Presbyterian pastor in Austin, Texas,
1: and one of the just passions that I've developed through the years is um, inclusive language, and I feel like that is really the linchpin for a lot of what is going to make us successful or just kind of a asterisk in the story of the church, because th- to me the language we use is foundational, and I've been very sad at some of the gatherings where, in the worship services, the uh, language was used, male language for God, or language that kind of plays into some of the other attitudes of, of our culture. So I'm very excited that we're exploring a new way of speaking about humankind. To me, a lot of what we struggled with that has appeared to be about um, you know more specific topics like Uh, people who have anti-gay attitudes, um, the anti-abortion movement. To me, a lot of that is actually about patriarchy. And if we don't remember that, then we can win victories that are only temporary. Patriarchy, like racism, um, like so many of the other attitudes of our culture, these are cancers in the background. And if we do not purge them from our speech, and I think from our, from our thoughts, when you have people who use sexist language in their ordinary speaking, and then try to have worship services where they don't do that, it's a matter of time until they slip up. If you had cancer in your blood, you wouldn't play with that at all. You'd try to get every trace of it out. And what I'm suggesting is we need to do that sexist language uh, in these movements for liberation. Um, A prejudice is a trance. And when we forget that, when we trust our objectivity, when we trust our comfort with certain words, I think we play into the problem in a way we don't understand that a prejudice is like a telescope. You're looking through it. You can't see it. And if you trust your comfort, then chances are you're gonna use language that is oppressive to somebody somewhere kind of thing. some of the examples of it are obviously the word Father for God. A lot of people have realized that that's a problem, but then they'll translate it into another language like Abba as a way of, of keeping that leash on. It's not on purpose, nobody's meaning to do it, but if we can't think of God without gender, There's going to be their problems when we talk about the risen Christ as he. When our um, when Christ is not an image like Paul said, that's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. When we don't have that new uh, uh, kind of universal view of humankind, then I think there's a a tremendous problem. Now, um, the hardest word probably for the church will be the word Lord. And I think there are people, good people, on both sides of saying whether that word uh, should be included. What I would say is we should really explore when a word has that much privilege in it. It's a European word. It's one translation of a Greek word. But it's a European word that happens to look like Christopher Columbus. Uh, it's it's uh, a landholder. Uh, the image most people get is male but also white and also powerful and rich and all of those things that Jesus wasn't um, I mean, he, did, he did not identify himself with any of those and, and in fact just the opposite he sided with the oppressed the downtrodden and I think we have to do that with our language when we say that really what God would want to be is rich and powerful and all of those things but he pretended to be powerless when he was on earth. I think we're really denying the revelation that is there for us, that every human being has worth, every human being, and that our language has to be stripped of these prejudicial kinds of terms. So to me, we have to be patient with each other. We have to realize it's a conversation, that different words mean different things to different people. That It's a, it's a conversation, but we also have to grieve our way out of it. If somebody decides today not to use sexist language, they're going to be sad about it for a long time because our self-identity, all of these things are formed and there's a huge emotional cost of treating everybody the same because the culture, we don't own up to it, but it's very classist, that there's all kinds of status that's involved and all kinds of oppression that we're born into and stepping out of that, getting our identity and sense of of self-worth from being better than somebody, it takes a while to get used to that. So what I'm very thrilled at the possibility of these organizations looking at is, is really seeing this as the revelation that we're talking about a new humankind, a new idea where domination has no role or part, and to me, we're talking about a new Pentecost, where that language isn't a burden, it uh, it's a revelation of the worth of every human being everywhere.
0: So that's allow me to do follow-up. So yes, sir. in the um, in the um, from a glossary perspective then, in the approach to sanitize our worship language from these kinds of effort, these kinds of their they're nuances, but they're also explicit references. Yes. Um, what 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 method do you suggest um, in identifying what I'll call, for lack of a better term, substitute language or new new language? Yes. And um, what specific uh, examples come to your mind if you have any in terms of those those, uh, those alternatives? It's a
1: great question, and. Um, The the, the question is, I'm assuming it's not picking up on camera, Um, the the question that some people ask is, um, how do we do that substitute language without losing the heart of the message? And what I would say is that um, the reason that Presbyterian ministers wear a robe is is not ritual, it's it's an academic gown to talking about the ability to speak biblical language and translate them for our day. The word "curios" that gets translated "lord" in Kittel's Greek dictionary has 50 pages of definition. The idea that only one of them has worth, and it happens to be a white European male, the the stereotype of domination in our culture, I don't think that's an accident. So what I think is if you go back deeper into the concepts again, you go back into the biblical work and you realize how there are multitudes of ideas for God and for, for Christ, and that the Sufis have something like, I think they say t- 10,000 names for God, and that enriches, it because we're talking about the ineffable, we're talking about the mystery of the universe. The Jewish people were so careful to use that divine name in a way that pointed beyond itself into the mystery into whatever that was that was burning in the burning bush and you couldn't say it you couldn't make images of it and we've done all of that and that's it's that idolatry that has us trapped now that if we can remember that when we're talking about the name of god we're talking about the ineffable substance of the universe the essence of the universe and it's beyond us and it's beyond our images then we realize that whatever creeds we say hymns they're not dictionary definitions of something so God is in some ways it's like a father uh, in other ways like a mother uh, some ways like a friend in some ways like uh, a river you know it, it opens up endless possibilities I think
0: so then the process part of that my um, resonating with everything you say um, and from a Presbyterian perspective, bump up into the mechanic of such a conversation. So what process um, do you envision that would be um, the most inclusive and the most uh, organically legitimate as relates to, uh, as you say, the the sorting through uh, the options for the use of Lord, for instance?
1: I would say that the way out of this trap that we've built for ourselves is to go deeper into the original revelation that's there for us. So you go into the Hebrew, you go into the Greek, and you see these are incredibly rich concepts, and it's like a a peacock spreading the tail. It's um, When you look at the stories of um, God's revelation of who God is in the Jewish scripture, it's clearly way beyond just a human being. And it's clearly beyond gender. I mean, if you think about it, if God has one gender but doesn't have a spouse, that would be eternal frustration. That you know, it's like you have to realize that we're we're saying that God is father-like, is mother-like. That, that those are, are tinctures. They're tints on on the revelation that help us understand that we belong to the universe. That we are not orphans and accidents. Of, of the cosmos that we are the expressions we're the children and it's that sense of belonging that the symbols trying to call us to not trying to tell us what god's gender looks like or what you know god
0: looks like without clothes on so standing committee uh, commission um, uh, academic examination in terms of just how to how to jumpstart this conversation into an actual process.
1: I would say you have uh, Bible studies there at churches because this isn't complicated. I mean, everybody in their heart knows it all comes down to love, right? I mean, that's sometimes the church teaches that and sometimes we don't. But people are, it's not a complicated thing. It's realizing it's poetry. It's poetry and the, the point of it is we belong. We're the children of this creativity, this cosmic creativity. And that experience is what the symbol is pointing to, not a logical understanding. The whole point of calling it a mystery is to say you don't grasp it. You realize that it grasps you, it holds you, it leads you, it guides you. And it's that sense of interconnectivity of all beings that is, I think, what the symbol is pointing to. And if we get too specific, it's like trying to analyze a poem you know, trying to go into Hamlet and, and get really specific about him, him being Danish. And, and we don't realize those were all uh, poetic devices to get the insight across. That when Shakespeare was doing this, it wasn't history. And scripture is not history. It's m- way more important than that. It's cosmic poetry that tells us who we are in the universe. So. I'm
0: just taking notes on what you're saying. Because <laughs> I'm <So. laughs> very... Very captivated. By it. Oh, well so, thanks. so if you're, so if you're, so take it one step further. Literally speaking, what you are referring to is <clears throat> stripping the language of its imperialist aspect, um, which is a notion that all imperialists will oppose. Yes. So. In terms of how to do that conversation, and I'm try, I was trying to get at it, it for, through the process thing, I was trying to, to, to have you um, speak to a strategy concerning the resistance. And, of course, with the Bible study, it's, it is the truth. But really what you're talking about is recalibrating our approach to Scripture, and that seems to me to be um, quite a tall order from a, from a process perspective. I think step number one, I, I get what you're asking now,
1: Step number one, and this is an overture that a number of us are working on, is to allow churches to use non-sexist language for God in every aspect of our worship and life. And we presented that in our presbytery, and it was voted down, which begins the conversation of why sexism is essential. an essential tenet of the Reformation. That it it starts with people saying, "Can we be non-sexist?" and the church, the dominant church, saying, "No." Uh, and then beginning the conversation there. Well, why, why is that so? Why is it that uh, God can be a boy but not a girl? Why is it that um, this language that, that looks like Christopher Columbus is the only way to talk about somebody who renounced that kind of oppression and power every day of his life?
0: Sexism is one of the Reformation, did you say?
1: Oh, that essentially by saying we can't change the language. It's saying that sexism is an essential tenet of the reformation. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Thank you for your time.